0: Hello, and welcome to the Director's Wall podcast, Coppola Cast edition. Yeah. All right. I'm um, one of your
1: co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly. All right, and we're back. I'm excited. Uh, sorry that it's taken a while. What's great about podcasting, it's like one of those jobs where, you know, you, if you don't feel like going to work, you don't have to until you feel like going to work. It's like having a food truck. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know what? I am just going to go to Marfa for a month and not have a job. <laughs> and then I do feel like having a job, I and open up my food truck and, oh, and I don't like this place, I'm going to have it somewhere else, eh, I'm going to take another month off. It might rain today, I guess I'm staying home. Staying home. home. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it's different for the people that actually make money off their podcast if they feel obligated to like do it more quickly and consistently, I getting like getting he, like, ad money. If you're making you know? money off
0: your podcast, you probably have a boss that is making you do it.
1: You think, you don't think it's so popular that they just like, oh, I got this ad money. So therefore I can just like, I just do this and make money. I feel like most of what I would think of
0: as professional podcasters are, (laughs) you know, it's one of many things that they do. And that podcast is usually part of a network. Mm. And then every once in a while they will like shill for the network, like uh, PBS, NPR style.
1: And I bet those are done in like a professional studio, not just like a living room with a with a pizza. Yeah, they probably have an engineer
0: <laughs> yeah. and you know, someone watching the levels.
1: Man, I don't listen to those corporate podcasts. <clears throat> yeah, this is where it's at. <laughs> so every episode we also review a coppola wine. Still haven't gotten any free wine from Mr. Coppola f- for this. I mean, hey, we're plugging it. We're here. For the world, we're here. What's great is before this podcast I never really tried a coppola wine. I don't know why I didn't. I just was like, I don't know. I don't know if I need to try that. And I'm so glad that we have, because all, they've all been very good. Yeah. Right? Like, there hasn't been one yet that I'd send back. And this week, we we are doing the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection 2017 Black Label Claret 1910 Type Cab Savion. Uh, and let me just read what the back says. Oh, and it's got this nice gold webbing around it, for whatever reason. I think if the bottle breaks, does that contain any of the... The, it seems like it's the, the gaps are, are too, too wide. Yeah, it's just decoration, I guess. Um, Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Claret is our signature offering. As its British-derived name implies, it's made in the same style as Bordeaux's finest M- Medoc, M-E-D-O-C, type wines. Don't know what that means. Claret is a Cabernet Sauvignon-based ba- wine blended in the classic Bordeaux style that exhibits exceptional depth and texture with truly unique flavors. Our claret bottle is distinguished with gold netting, as mentioned, a tribute to the way Europe's finest wines were once presented. So there you go. Oh. And this t- ties in well with the movie today since we are dealing with a European film. We are. Um, so yeah, the webbing, I find it annoying because you're trying to pour the bottle. It's too it's And you're too just wide. slipping around and your fingers get caught in it. It just kind of looks like a f- crappy fish. It does net. not. It doesn't look classy to me. It looks ve- It's very loose. It looks like the bottle might
0: fall through one of the holes. It does. It's not snug up against
1: the bottle. Great idea. I don't know, Mr. Mm. Coppola. Maybe mm. maybe go back to the drawing board on that one. Yeah. But uh, this is a good one. I think. Dare I say, this is the best one we've had. Does it tell? Does it explain its flavors on the oh. back? It doesn't. Uh, See, I well, never know what to say. It tastes like other than grapes. unless they tell me uh, on the the bottle
0: i prefer the whites to reds in general so i i've really enjoyed the white wines that we've had um but but of the reds we've had this one is my favorite
1: but it's good because it's gotten colder in austin it's now it's only like 80 degrees today yeah so it's like put on your winter coats and have a red wine the the, the season has changed no more white wine AJ, until march oh
0: that's right no, no white wine after Labor Day. Is that how yeah. that goes? Yeah,
1: you got to follow those wine or rules. A,
0: or cereal mom will get you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so today we are doing um, another one of the films that Coppola wrote. He wait the last few that we've uh, the last one we did was one of his screenwriter for hire Francis Ford Coppola as Hollywood screenwriter, and this movie is called Is Paris Burning? And I believe it is your turn to yeah. describe the plot of this, okay. of this of this very long movie. But maybe you can do the short version.
0: I will try because <laughs> this is a it's an ensemble uh, like epic film. It's three hours long. To. Uh, two hours, 52 minutes technically, but you might as well be three hours at that point.
1: So Some of that is intermission, and on a DVD you can just skip that chapter. Yeah. That'll save you like five minutes. Um.
0: Oh, I got thoughts on the intermission <laughs> and entrance music. <laughs> but so this, um, excuse me, it's a American, French, German production. So the cast is like sprawling. Okay, we've got Jean-Paul Jean-Paul Belmondo, we've got Alain Elon Delon, Charles Boy, Boyer. Is that
1: is he the Boyer. guy in Sorcerer? Sor- like I the freaking movie, is he the what, I've never he, seen that one. Like he I think he was the one that was like the French guy. Charles Boyer was in, in Gaslight.
0: Sor- he was the guy making bergman thinks she was insane
1: as a young man or yeah, an old man as a
0: young man that was in the 40s he was your like suave uh, seductive european guy okay throughout the 40s leslie caron is in this um and orson wells kirk douglas glenn ford anthony perkins uh, robert stack among many 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 others and is telling the story of the liberation of paris so it's 1944 allies have landed in Normandy they're pushing their way through and Hitler is given the order to the uh, uh, commandant of Paris that if it looks like they're gonna lose the city to burn the whole thing to the ground so the guy plant has uh, his Nazis plant bombs all over the cities and we basically see uh, the liberation of Paris from a bunch of different angles So we are with the underground, uh, which has two different opposing factions, and then we see the, uh, the Americans, we see the, like, kind of the common people. We see the, the Germans and all the stress that the commandant is going through. Orson Welles is the Swedish, uh, consul who's trying to negotiate not burning Paris throughout this whole thing. and. That's about it. <laughs> um,
1: but there's a million people running around. Yeah, there's uh, a million people running the around. The cast so, is very long. Oh, Bruno, Bruno Cremer, That's the guy from Sorcerer. Sorry, all these French okay. guys. He was the Frenchman in Sorcerer. If you haven't seen that movie, it's much better than this one. <laughs> okay,
0: So in The Resistance, you have the people loyal to Charles de Gaulle, the de Gaullists... And then you have the communists, and they don't like each other, but they've got to work together. And then there's, like, the exiled French government, and they're in England somewhere, I think. That's the, where I would imagine they'd go. It's pretty close. Anyway, so the, so the resistance have to sneak out a guy to get to the provisional government, in exile uh, behind the lines where the allies have invaded to try and convince the allies to come liberate the city because they've heard that the allies are gonna skirt around and press on right through germany
1: go right straight to berlin yeah
0: and while that is happening <clears throat> the communist faction of the resistance has decided we're gonna retake the city now we're not waiting for the allies so they start to retake the city there's some battles orson wells comes in and convinces the nazi commandant to not destroy the city to just uh, order a ceasefire and wait for reinforcements that we know aren't coming because germany's really losing the war at this point point. and so he orders a ceasefire which gives uh time for the allies to redirect part of their forces to come help liberate the city and then we see just of like dozens of different characters come in and we see the liberation from a bunch of different points of view from americans from french from nazis fleeing and there's a lot of parades through the city and in the end paris is not burned and the city is free then the bells of notre dame
1: ring out in freedom were the bells of Notre Dame damaged in that fire recently? I don't know, because I'd imagine because the, the roof was burning, that one of those yeah. babies have dropped <laughs> into. the <laughs> Well, I think it was the roof of the main. One of the other steeples chapel? or whatever.
0: I, I don't know if it was the steeples. Mm. Um, yeah, that was tragic. Mm-hmm. But the the overall structure of Notre Dame is still there. Still there. It's going to be repaired, but slowly. <clears throat> Um, yeah, this feels like a procedural
1: film. <laughs> it's like they had, like, we have 30 scenes that we need to hit, 30 facts that we need to convey, and we're just going to go in order and relay those 30 facts to you, and maybe some of those, like, this movie, for a war film, not very visual for the most part. There's a few great shots, like, there's the scene at the train station which I think is the the best scene in the movie, where there's this guy who's got been released from going to the prison camps, and Orson Welles goes to the train station to like, no, we got to release again with the guy's wife, but the Nazis Leslie Caron and the and the Nazis are like, no, no, we're not releasing anybody, no, no, I don't care what paperwork you have, and like that, and she's trying to find him, and then they find him, and then the Nazis just like are like, fuck you, and they just kill him, and then there's a great shot where it's kind of behind all the Nazis' boots as like they, they're standing in a row like in order, and that scene's very visual. But then the rest of the room, a lot of the movie feels like te- television level almost. Like people in a yeah. terrible set, standing around, well, here's talking to each other. about like So that scene, it's a dramatic
0: emotional scene. And there's not a lot of drama in this movie about mm-hmm. the liberation of Paris. Yeah. And then after that, Leslie Caron disappears that whole plot line is done
1: and that's i think the main problem with this movie is it's so sprawling and so much an ensemble movie that you don't feel for anybody or anything like someone will show up and then they'll die like all the communists are like oh here we are and like oh let's go in the back of the truck and then they all get shot like two minutes later or the the one the one that made me the most mad oh and i guess we should say spoiler alert by the way we give away everything in these movies this podcast yeah uh, Anthony Perkins shows up at the very end of the movie. You're like, oh, finally, Anthony Perkins. He's and this he's, guy that's been he's just wanting like, to see Paris Oh, he's so life. excited to see Paris. And, you know, he's pondering Paris and death. And then he goes to Paris and they have a little bit of a, you know, a scuffle with some Nazis. And then he's like, let's have some wine. And he, the Frenchman takes him to get a glass of wine. And then he dies. Yeah. And you're like, okay. <laughs> the, end. Love the end. It's the end. Similarly,
0: a French... Uh, uh, a french soldier returning like points to a building that they passes by in his tank and it's like that's my house like it's still there and there's the store i was going to go buy cigarettes from that store and then the nazis invaded and i never went back now i'm back and he shouts to his wife who may or may not be in the building i'm back and then their tank gets shot yeah. and blows up and you see a burning pack of cigarettes on the <laughs> ground like he kept them for four years and never smoked them.
1: And it kind of keeps the good actors from doing anything interesting where you wonder, why is Bellamondo in this movie? He literally, he shows up, doesn't say a lot, and then there's one scene where he's shot at and he's crawling on the ground like with his bike or whatever. And nope. then that's kind of it. it. And then he disappears. Well, it's like and you don't like, know. Like, like Anthony you Perkins
0: this... gets shot and dead and then he's not in the movie anymore. Leslie Caron's husband... Dies And then she's not in the movie anymore. And so, like, people disappear from
1: this movie, whether they're alive or they're dead. Yeah, like, you get... Belmondo, I assume, lived. Lived, but... And then you're not using these people for the strength. Like, Belmondo, a very funny man, a very funny actor. You have him just playing this serious guy that's just, like, one of a million people partaking in this event. And then he's gone. There's so many people in this movie.
0: I had to have the cast list open in front of me while I watched it. (laughs) And I was thinking, so... It's in alphabetical order, so Belmondo is listed first. But um, I mean, to me, he's a big deal, and this is a French, mostly a French movie. See, so I figured for an hour
1: for him to show up.
0: For him to show up, and then he's just standing like in a group of guys. Yeah. And, like
1: I thought he would
0: have more, <laughs> have more to do. I had to watch this movie in parts because it was so long. <laughs> it- I paused it, and I t- I told my wife uh, like. Elon uh, Delon is supposed to be in this movie. I don't know if I've seen him. Like, I I, I can't Maybe remember. Maybe you
1: forgot what he looked
0: like. Like I can't remember what he looks like. And she assures me like he's very handsome.
1: He's a very handsome man with the beautiful eyes. Yes,
0: and then, uh, sure enough uh there appears a very handsome man and like oh that must be a Delon. yes that is the samurai
1: and uh, other than orson welles all the american actors don't show up until like the second half so all of a sudden kirk douglas shows up you're like oh shit it's kirk douglas don't worry he's in one scene dead middle of the movie that's it <laughs> and then robert stack shows up you're like oh robert stack he's in maybe one and a half scenes Vanishes. Robert Stack uh,
0: always, always hard faced.
1: Hard faced, and and watching him in this ensemble World War Two movie just made me really want to watch 1941, the better World War Two movie with Robert Stack in it as a war general. I will say it. Robert Stack gets to show
0: more emotion and have more of a character in nineteen forty one. Yeah. Uh it's the the only <laughs> scene in nineteen forty one I particularly like.
1: Where he's crying during Dumbo? Yeah. <laughs> so when he good. goes to see Dumbo
0: and he's so affected by it, he's like smiling and then he cries. <laughs> And the best part of 1941 is watching another man have a legitimate emotional reaction to a
1: different movie. (laughs) And a movie that we've all had the same reaction to because it's during the scene with Dumbo's mom, which if you don't cry during that, that means you have no soul. Yeah. And you are just going to just melt into the earth someday. Uh, Then you also have um, uh, Glenn Ford, who's great. Again, doing nothing. Shows up as one of many Americans... Oh, uh, backtrack, so Kirk Douglas, interesting, Kirk Douglas plays General George Patton, so this makes it the first of two movies that Francis Coppola wrote with Patton as a character, the other one being, of course, Patton, which he wrote and won the Oscar for like four years later. Funny you should mention that. Um, So at this point, Coppola
0: is just a writer for hire. He really wants to direct his own movie, uh, but he's just getting assigned jobs, so uh the company he was working for seven arts was working with paramount and french interests to make this movie say so, hey do you want to go on vacation to paris you can take your wife and family like sure like okay also you have to write this movie there was another screenwriter working on the movie who was very old and near death hmm. and coppola was complaining about like this guy thinks I'm his assistant and he keeps hassling me and the execs were like, just wait a bit. Wait till he dies. <laughs> and sure enough sure enough the guy dies. So Coppola became the sole screenwriter. Problem he had was he felt like the most interesting part of the movie was the uh, the communist faction and the De Gaullist faction of the resistance clashing. But since De Gaulle was running the country at this point, I think I don't in know. In 1966? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know much about French history. It seems like he became the president for life after he liberated Paris. I don't know. Like, I mean, it's the 60s <laughs> and people are complaining about him. He's been around so long to complain about <laughs> Well, it.
1: that's when you get into the 1968 riots and. In- paris is it 68 yeah 68 that's what the dreamers the is dreamers about. are about, and that's the, a lot of communists and yeah. maoists and uh anti-de so Gaulle
0: was adamant that there were no communists in france not then not ever there were no communists so there can't be any communists in this movie and coppola had to take that note and Lie. Lie. because <laughs> So there are communists in the movie, but... They die pretty quickly. They die pretty quickly. <laughs> they and, get punished. Uh, and the de Gaulle side is the like heroic, triumphant side. So yeah, he had to deal with studio notes and the government of Charles Prop- de Gaulle. French
1: propaganda. Yeah, and apparently... Uh, so
0: he was having such trouble that Gore Vidal was brought on mm-hmm. uh, to help him write the script but also just be more of like uh intermediary to like break the tension. Yeah Gorvadal do you not give a
1: fuck about what anyone thinks. Gorvidal's a tough guy. Yeah. So that's
0: what <laughs> Gor did and then after the script was finished a bunch of French de Gaulle had French guys rewrite the script <laughs> even more. Um but the scene
1: he wrote with Patton Got him the job writing patents, and also, in my opinion, that is the best scene in the movie <laughs> because Kirk Douglas is great. By the way, still alive? He's like 102. Yeah, he's still alive. <laughs> that guy is gonna outlive like the bugs of the world. Uh, that will live dirt. Like he's gonna be like him and T Rex will be in a museum next to each other, being like, "Man, these guys ruled the earth forever." Uh, uh, side note: There was a news article recent-ish. Where it's like Kirk Douglas goes camping in the backyard with his grandson, and in your mind you're like, oh, that'll be adorable. It's like this old man, this little kid. No, Kirk Douglas' grandson is like 45 years old, <laughs> because the dude is so old. So it's Kirk Douglas, age 102, and his 45-year-old grandson sleeping in a tent in his mansion's backyard. And there's pictures of Kirk Douglas with those big, like, old man sunglasses that fit over your glasses, just like looking cool. He what? If, what if Kirk Douglas ends up being the oldest man who's ever lived? Wouldn't that be amazing? That'd be it could happen. Like, Kirk, like Michael Douglas could die before Kirk Douglas. Yeah. He almost has. He had that throat cancer or whatever. So, like, Kirk Douglas still going. But he, he played a great Patton. A very different than the George C. Scott Patton that yeah. we'll talk about later on when we review Patton. But that scene is good. He's, like, a very confident kind of, like, kind of wise-ass a little bit. Like He's, he's just, very he's confident. Like, he's very, very much, like, like, um... There's a little bit of humor in that scene. Like
0: a... I don't know, like a stern, like teacher or like principal he's like look i get where you're coming at you know you want me to help liberate paris but here's the reasons why i can't and they're all like good reasons they're all legit reasons and he's like sorry guy i can't help you and then the guy leaves and then he calls omar bradley be like hey bradley what the hell is going on in paris (laughs) and then he has bradley help out with the liberation uh but so it's so funny because this movie Got Coppola pegged as a war film writer. So he got the last job we talked about, uh, This Property Is Condemned, because the studio thought, oh, he's really good at writing the South. So you should write this movie that's set in the South. What
1: did he do that make them think he was good at writing the South?
0: He adapted the novel Reflections in a Golden Eye.
1: But they didn't use his script. But they didn't use his that's script. Right. <clears throat>
0: And then, just randomly, he gets assigned this job. He writes it. It's a war movie. There's Patton. Patton is in it. And then Fox is like, oh, we're making a movie about Patton.
1: This guy, he knows war films. We'll, <laughs> get, we'll get him the right Patton. So he's lying his way up, which is yeah. good. Because clearly he's not interested in either in a way of like, that's all he wants to do. He's just a very talented man who can make anything good. Yeah. And it just happens to be Patton. And what's really interesting is Patton is sort of like the thing that really makes him like that's really yeah. what like's gonna set forth him big getting into job. the yeah. Godfather and all that stuff. But uh, it'll be interesting is after this movie we're gonna get into a few kind of more experimental, weird, low budget things until Patton. Uh, back to the cast of this movie. My favorite cast part of this movie were the Nazis because two of the Nazis in this movie, like check this out. One is Goldfinger Gert Frobe. Oh my is god! Is the main main guy? That's You're Goldfinger. Totally right. As the main Nazi, he he plays the General Dietrich uh, von uh, Chaut, tits or how you say it? Uh, I don't know German that um, well. But uh, that's Col- Goldfinger. Kohlitz, Cholitz? So he's like the first, He's like the main German guy, and they put it. It's a very sympathetic Nazi character. He's sort of like. Doesn't really want to follow Hitler's orders. Agrees with Orson Welles's character. He doesn't want to destroy the culture and the, the, the architecture yeah, of Paris. Yeah, basically. And really, just it's like, and when, when he surrenders it in, he's like so relieved and doesn't want to do it anymore. That's. Uh, it's a very interesting portrayal of this Nazi
0: who is. Um, He's a general in the Wehrmacht, the regular army. He's not an SS guy. And the SS people—they all took an oath specifically to Hitler, mm-hmm. and they're Hitler crazy. If you were in the army before nineteen thirty-three, and then you're in the army after nineteen thirty-three, well, all of a sudden now you're a Nazi. Yeah, and this was probably one of those guys. And it's uh, just... still shouldn't have been fighting for Hitler. Yeah, I want to say <laughs> still should not have done it. But yeah, it's a very interesting uh, portrayal. It also takes away some of the drama and tension. Of the movie, because like, it, are the Nazis going to destroy Paris? You are like, no, because this guy doesn't want to no, do this. Guy that. does not want to do it, <laughs> and he tells he tells Orson Welles like,
1: the last time I talked to Hitler, he's I am pretty sure he's insane. And in this movie also had an interesting thing that I didn't realize: where the SS and the generals weren't getting along with each other because yeah. it was this movie begins sort of with the failed attempt at killing Hitler. Um by one of the generals, right? Isn't uh, that what like, Valkyrie is about uh, or whatever? Yeah, like Colonel the, Von Stauffenberg? So the SS is really like trying to keep tabs on their people in charge of the of the of their military And there's definitely a friction between the SS guy. There's a scene where the SS shows up and Gert Frub is like, I don't trust these guys. And he reaches for his gun under the desk while they're talking. And then he realizes they just want him to steal like a tapestry from the Louvre. Yeah, the bio tapestry. (laughs) Like
0: Himmler wants to give the bio tapestry to
1: Hitler. It's like a fun gift, it's a fun thing, you know? He's like,
0: well, the resistance has uh, the
1: Louvre, so please (laughs) go get it. So he's one, and then the other Nazi, that's only the beginning is Slugworth from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He plays the Nazi Gunter Meisner, and he's in the train sequence. And so it's like you get to see Slugworth from Willy Wonka and Goldfinger, and you're like, those that's such great casting for Nazis, these two evil-looking guys. <laughs> and as far as I can remember, this is the only movie I've ever seen with Goldfinger in it. Like, there's Goldfinger, and then there's this. Like, what else has Gert Frob done that anyone's seen? I don't know. But he's great. I like him a lot. Um, he, he plays a perfect Nazi, as you think you he, he would be. Um, <clears throat> so we talked about how this movie is sort of long. It definitely is, is it's hard to invest in it because there's no real emotion. It's weird to have a war movie where there's no emotion. And I, there's a lot of war movies like that. It's hard to portray history and battles with lots of people. And Especially, feel something if if you're just if you're doing it accurately where you're showing like everything, yeah. It's not like Saving Private Ryan. We're like it's D Day, but from the point of view of these eight guys. And even that movie, the first half hour, you're not with those eight guys. You're just kind of with the whole thing, and then it follows yeah, yeah. this group it after na- narrows
0: down to the um, to those eight guys.
1: It, it's 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 you know it was a different time. A lot of war movies were sort of like this. I think there's a lot of just like kind of these sprawling. It, it was
0: like uh, it was like we're making the movie about the liberation of paris or like we're making the longest day about d-day like this is it this is the movie it's only there's only gonna be one (laughs) so we've got to put all the stuff that is pertinent to that story and we got to show it from all different angles because this is the only time we're ever going to tell this story uh yeah, this movie feels like that it also feels like it's uh, in the waning days of the big studio yes. roadshow movie. It
1: feels like the end of it. Like it, yeah. it feels like it was New Hollywood down. is around the corner ready to be like, no, 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 let's tell stories about people that and you care about. This feels <laughs> like
0: a, sh- uh, a roadshow movie of a like proto-New Hollywood movie. Because the French New Wave is already, like, you're well Six, into Six, seven it. years in yeah. by this point, yeah. But yeah, so this movie has entrance music. It has a prologue of uh, the Goldfinger getting the order to burn Paris from
1: Hitler who you see on screen as a character yeah (laughs) and that part is really hokey and it's Hitler just being like burn Paris (laughs) and then it cuts to the credits and it seems very (laughs) silly Uh, (laughs)
0: then there's the credits then the movie starts then there's an intermission
1: the inverse is weird because it's it comes literally 2 hours into the whole There's only the there's less than an hour left. So it's like if you haven't gone to the bathroom by then, you're fine. Like you'd wait another 48 minutes. It's 2 minutes. hours.
0: There's less than an hour left. Let's just get it over with at this point. <laughs>
1: what the fuck, man? Do it at the halfway point. Intermission should be in the middle of the any movie. Point, it's like, if then you're like, okay, 90 minutes, you finish your soda. Halfway or go just pee. over halfway. Like at the
0: in in the the theater, the first act is always a little bit longer than the second act. But it's not nearly the whole damn thing.
1: You should, I feel, have at least 70 to 80 minutes left if you're going to have an intermission. Not at less, not less an than an hour.
0: I was gonna watch when I people
1: have peed already by that point. I turned on this movie. It
0: was late. I decided I'm gonna watch it, you know, till I, uh, till I fall asleep. And then there's uh, a <laughs> entrance music, which is just a black screen with music playing under it. And like, oh, okay. I love entrance music, so I I go to the bathroom. I prepare, uh, prepare myself a drink. I get settled in. If there's entrance music, there's going to be an an intermission. So I'll watch till the intermission. Yeah. You know, over an hour and 20 minutes later, there's no intermission. So I guess there's not an intermission. I'll just pause it here and finish this tomorrow. (laughs) And then there's an intermission. (laughs) When the movie's almost over, like the, the Americans have decided to come and liberate Paris, and the French general, not the Gaul, he does not appear in the movie, but another French general is like, yeah, we're going to do it, he says to some guy, and then the movie fades out to intermission, and then they come back, and it's just the actual boots-on-the-ground liberation of Paris.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There are there are some great scenes of the resistance in the movie. Like I love the scene where they climb up on that ledge, and they throw the bottle at the tank. And there's a lot of great scenes of them just sort of like showing you how the whole town was kind of like, fuck the Nazis, and them just like throwing you know like uh, Molotov cocktails at tanks and the Nazis, yeah, not, the Nazis not knowing where to go. Like those scenes are great, and they li- and they really used the streets of Paris. Like clearly, like they shut down blocks, and yeah, like, those de- scenes are great. Yeah, De Gaulle led uh, the production shut have, down this block yeah, and run around they, and do whatever anything. they needed. They just couldn't show um, communists in the movie. But, but I think that like, but it does, like it's, there's these great scenes that have this sort of sense of reality, but then, like you said, it's weighed down by this sort of like old Hollywood sort of thing. And I, it's weird. I think the soundtrack of this movie is terrible. And it's sad. Cause it's Maurice jar who did like all the David Lean stuff. Like he did Lawrence of Arabia. He did oh, Dr. Shivago. I didn't know that. Like he is a, one of the great, like maybe the great composer, and the music in this is just so hokey. This score. It's just really boring and hokey and it's like my, unnecessarily jaunty
0: at a lot of times. One of my notes is this score feels like a knockoff of Bridge on the River Kwai.
1: Same guy. He knocked himself off. Yeah. It's <laughs> right? Because like, did he do Bridge on yeah, the River Kwai? Yeah. And so, like, it's just all these scenes where it also it sort of feels like they're trying to do the Great Escape sort of thing. It's like a mix between the Great Escape thing and the march from Bridge on the River Quiet. It, it kind of has that yeah. feeling where it's a little jaunty, like, dun, 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 it's a little bit dun, like dun, a marching dun, dun, band dun, dun, thing. Dun, dun. But it's just not, it doesn't work for this movie. And like, there's all these scenes where it's like, oh, the French people are all on their bikes. And it just kind of... Because the jaunty music it, also
0: takes the drama out of the movie. It like, does. There's no, like, hey, we're going to watch them liberate Paris, not, are they going to be able it's to just, do it? It
1: makes it like, oh, look at these adorable, cute, precious French and how they're taking their town back. And it doesn't... You already have a movie that's lacking drama and character because you can't invest in any of the characters because they show up and then leave. And so then it's like, okay, well, you better make the filmmaking dramatic. It's like, nope. We have this weird jaunty music that doesn't fit with anything where it's the like, isn't it funny? They're all riding on bikes like French people. The yeah. filmmaking style,
0: it's sort of new wave in that it's very minimalist. It's stripped down. There's a lot of like wide shots, not a lot of close-ups. Yeah, and it's not really flashy aside from a few um, interesting shots like you mentioned. This is directed by Rene Cl- uh, Clement. Probably not how you pronounce it in French. Uh, he also directed Purple Noon.
1: Starring Elaine Delon. Yeah. Uh, so they're, very they're, handsome man. Very handsome <laughs> man. Yeah. And that's the Patricia Highsmith. Uh, that's the uh, talented Mr. Ripley, talented right? Talented Mr. Ripley. I've a- never seen that probably. movie. Is that, is that a good movie? Yes. I
0: think it might be the best movie version of the talented Mr. You don't Ripley. like the
1: Matt Damon? I like I like it. One?
0: I, like it. I haven't good. seen it for about 20 years. You saw it in the theater and that was it? Yeah. The movie's um, good. But I saw Purple Noon and I loved it. I recommend it at the video store it's, all the time. It's,
1: it's in French? Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, he is a director for this movie. I imagine he probably also got lots of notes from De Gaulle and people because it, it definitely lacks a flourish. It's very straightforward. And... It just it's clunky it feels clunky like the movie could definitely be shorter the, a lot of the scenes look cheap like some of the scenes are great like we said the scenes in the streets but like definitely all the sets look real cheap like they're like oh we need an office set like stat like just throw something together it looks like you're watching a play there's not a lot of interesting shots when people are just talking except for there's a one great scene where it's Gert Frobe and Orson Wells having a discussion and there's a plate of t- cakes between them. <laughs> And man, the temptation those two portly men must have felt uh, having a serious discussion with like at least four decorated cakes between the two of them. I wonder if like once they yelled cut, they both just like just fought over these cakes like wild dogs in the street over bone. Uh, that, that was pretty good. It's just like, the two men with the largest bellies in this movie, conversation with a plate of cakes, or with a table of cakes between them. Um, and oh man... The stock footage is so poorly edited into this movie, it feels so, it's so crappy. It's very obviously <laughs> it's stock footage. Very obviously stock footage, didn't even try to match it, didn't even try to fix up. It's just grainy news footage, which maybe is why the movie is black and white. So they can like, okay, then we'll shoot, we'll cut to shots of the actual stuff. But it just does not fit. It just, it's ill-fitting. It feels very sloppy.
0: Yeah, it doesn't fit. And then it's a bit. It's a bit jarring, not just because it's obviously news footage, but then it's like, "Oh, I'm watching real war now." Like, these people are like really getting shot?
1: Yeah. It takes the fun out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then another big problem is this movie does not feel like when it takes place. It feels like 1966. The way everybody looks, the way everyone is dressed feels like 1966 Paris. Like the haircuts that all the Frenchmen have and the way they look, I do not buy for a second that that's how people looked when this movie took place. Don't you agree? Like it didn't feel yeah. like I didn't I couldn't invest in the time frame of it because I just didn't believe it. They didn't really try, I feel. Like it's easy with the Americans you just buzz their heads and give them like the army cut, but like the Fr- it's like the way that like like Bellamondo looks, Elon Delon, or like they just have like they just don't look the way that I feel men looked back then. Yeah. And I mean I'm i st- I'm only basing this on French movies from the early forties, not like actual reality. So but in terms of how people looked in movies in the early '40s in France, they did not look as stylish and cool as the as the 1966 Frenchman look. I find <laughs> the uh, the turret of a tank turning slowly
0: to be very intimidating and scary, <laughs> and that happens in this movie quite a bit. Um, Why does that scare you? I don't know, it's like this big hulking thing, and then like part of it. You know, the the top part, like, the head, the eyes are slowly turning towards you. And it happens
1: then, a few times in this yeah, movie. Yeah, and then you
0: have a choice of, like, uh, do I try and, like, blow up this tank or should I just run the hell away? And you probably don't have enough time to do either by that point.
1: Would it make sense to run towards the tank because the thing would probably go, go over, over you, you? Right, so if a tank fires, you just kind of crouch down and run towards it. Yeah. And then it would blow up the thing behind you. But then maybe the Nazi would pop out of the tank and shoot you with his Luger or whatever. Yeah. But movies like this really make me appreciate the Indiana Jones movies. Because it tells you about World War II, but in a sh- half the amount of time with humor, <laughs> with characters that you like. Uh, and it's fun and exciting and sad and scary. Yeah. And <laughs> you don't need I to was... have a million characters. You have the Indiana Jones and some of the Nazis and maybe a lady... And that's all you need. I was (laughs) uh his other stuff. As a child, Uh, I was terrified
0: of the Nazis in The Last Crusade. They're really evil. They're really evil. They were burning books, and as like a six-year-old child, I thought they were burning all books, like every book. Just if it was paper, it had to be burned because that's how evil they were. (laughs) I didn't know about the Holocaust when I was six.
1: And this Hitler, not so good. The Hitler in this movie, as movie Hitlers go. He, he doesn't really it's not really effective no, he just, he's, he's, he, he's no just, Bruno like, Gantz he's no Bruno Gantz uh, um, he's no final... Gilbert Godfrey. Uh, <laughs> as great movie Hitler's the go the final
0: uh, line of the movie like as Paris is being liberated and the church bells are ringing is a phone off the hook with a German voice, presumably Hitler, Hitler. screaming, "Is Paris burning? <laughs> Is Paris
1: burning?" It, it's like such a punchline. <laughs> it's done very. It's very silly. Actually, the opening credits of this movie are really good too, where it's all the shots of sort of like all the Nazis, like kind of like stationing up in Paris, like mm-hmm. that, that kind of that mo- that opening montage yeah. of like everybody like occupying Paris. That's good. It's weird. It's like, I, I, I don't quite understand exactly why this movie doesn't work. I think maybe it's because of the lack of of characters you invest in. Because when you look at something like Band of Brothers, that's also like a very fact-based show that goes through like all the exact details of what happened with a cast of lots of people but yet I'm very emotionally invested in that show. Like, yeah, when like I watch that show like you're I'm, I'm into it and like those episodes will change the point of view all the time yeah. of who you're following but maybe it's because it still will hang out with these people for more than 3 minutes. Yeah, uh, like no one
0: <laughs> no one is a central character here aside from maybe
1: uh, the Nazi commandant. Uh, 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 Goldfinger. <laughs> <laughs> and at times it kind of feels like, back to the, this character, an episode of Young Indiana Jones, where he'd be like, oh, hello, it's Pancho Villa. Hello, famous person from the history that I will be talking to. And so you have to part with the guy who's like going through... And he meets Patton, and he's going to meet Charles de Gaulle, and he's, like, meeting all these famous people in history, and, uh, like, we know who Patton is. Oh, there he is, talking to Patton. And I just don't believe that that's how it really happens. This guy just showed up and was like, hey, can I talk to Patton about what's going on? Like, I'm sure he talked to someone who talked to someone who talked to someone who talked to someone. someone. Yeah, Uh, he, he like, sneaks through, like, a field, and there are Nazis
0: hiding. They're like, ah, should we shoot him? Like, no, we'll give away our position to the Americans. And so then he goes through the field and then he stumbles upon some americans who are like hey where'd you come from he's like i must talk to general Patton." and so (laughs) then they take him immediately to Patton. no you know there's no uh questioning of him like what are you doing in a wearing a suit in the middle of this field
1: in northern france so the guy at the end that french guy that's not de gaulle he's the guy who looks like de gaulle yeah he's which is confusing because he looks exactly Looks like exactly like De Gaulle. He has the the Gaul mustache. He's wearing the De Gaul hat. And there's even a part where the guy's sort of like flabbergasted to talk to him, the guy's like, "I know, I know." And it's like, "Well, are we supposed to know who that guy is?" Yeah. And who like, is that guy? If they, he's not
0: De Gaulle, who is that guy? Again, I don't know every detail about the Liberation of Paris, so I don't know if like this guy is real or if he's a De Gaulle stand-in.
1: Because <laughs> he's not supposed to be the Gaul, right? No. No, who he's, is he? I don't know. But like when the guy meets him, he's like, "Oh, I can't believe I'm meeting you!" And he goes like, "I know, I know." And he's like, "Wait, but I don't know who this is. He, I assumed it was De Gaulle because he looks like the, like if someone just drew a drawing of De Gaulle, but it's not. It's some other guy. And maybe if I was French, I'd be like, "Oh, it's so and so. Oh my God." Yeah. Maybe French people don't know who Patton is. I don't know. Uh, not likely. We saved their asses. They should know <laughs> who Patton is. But, <laughs> but. Uh, and this movie will also, I think, make us really appreciate Patton when we watch it. Because from my recollection, that's a great movie. Like, it's been a while since I've watched it. It's equally long. I think it's definitely it's longer than this movie. It, it's definitely
0: a full three But hours. you
1: follow one character, Patton, through the whole thing, played by great actor George C. Scott. And so you actually have a little bit of emotional investment as opposed yeah. to like 50, 60 people running around. Yeah,
0: like you don't follow... Belmondo or Delon or even like Orson Welles, who you probably see the most, you he's... don't follow them beginning to end, and they each play a role. Yeah, but there's no through, no <laughs> through line or no through character connecting everything. And
1: even that that, that the guy from Sorcerer, Bruno Carmer like for the first half of the movie, he's in it quite a bit, and he's like checking in and trying to get things going, and then he's just gone. And, like, yes, yes, it's hokey to do, like, in a way, like, let's do a movie where we follow these people through this thing. But you know what? What worked for Titanic can work for any movie. Like, if you just make up a character, this is so-and-so, going through the French Resistance, going through the thing to go through the whole process. And it grounds the thing, and it actually makes you really understand... What's going on? Because when you watch a movie like this, I just kind of glaze over because it's sort of like, oh, this is just like going through kind of a bland history. So many book. people, because it's like cheat you're cheat just kind of throwing things out. I like, have a cheat, in, cheat in front of me, but I I'm not track of everybody, feeling anything. But if you follow a you know a couple through the Titanic and their whole romance from the beginning, from the from the boat launch to its sinking to 80 years in the future. You feel it, and you think about it, and you think about the Titanic and what happened and how it was and what it must have been like to be there. And with something like this, you don't get any of that. You're just sort of like, okay, that happened. Cool. I don't think I really know more about this than if I just read the Wikipedia page. I mean, at the time, you didn't have that. Or if I read the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1966, I would get the gist of exactly the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, at least Coppola Um, tried. Like, the scenes with Pat and stuff are good. They're funny. But the, car- the character connection is really lacking, sadly, um, in this yeah, movie. This <clears throat> movie, this story, would be a
0: good mini series or limited series today. Or you could have like 10, 15 episodes to tell this story. And each episode focus on, you know, the different people that all played a role.
1: Like a band of brothers. Yeah. yeah. That,
0: that equaled up to this big historic event
1: i think that could still happen i mean the french resistance yeah. is an interesting it's, it's an interesting story and how that, again, they, and it's an interesting lesson yeah. in history and, and i, I did, did like that i mean there is you know
0: us being americans you know but <laughs> but maybe throughout the world thinking like hey look we won the war for you french guys okay <laughs> and this like the french returning to paris and fighting the Nazis out themselves is a big part of this movie. You know, they're reclaiming their country so they get a victory too. Yeah. Uh, but then at the end, as they're driving towards Notre Dame to start ringing the bells, the Americans pull in and cut them off <laughs> and say something like, Hey, we won the race. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, this would have been a better comedy if it was like a, like a mad, 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 mad world where which. Uh, group is yeah. going to race to save Paris first or which one's going to destroy Paris first. <laughs> uh, funny enough, there was a Mad Magazine parody, of course, of this movie called Is Paris Boring? Yes. Kind yes, it, Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Touché, Mad Magazine. I hate to say it, but yeah, it, it kind of is. Um, uh, it took, this is the longest uh, it's taken me to do a podcast, but it's like there actually was a gap of almost two months <laughs> between <laughs> the two episodes because I looked at it and I'm like, I don't want to watch a three hour black and white sometimes here's the problem there's title, not like there's not a movie. lot of I just knew I knew in my heart that it wasn't going to be the th- emotional investment that, that I wanted it to be
0: the problem is there's not a lot of great underseen movies that are three hours long all the yeah three hour long epic great movies we know about Bridge on the River Kwai Lawrence of Arabia Avengers
1: 1 Avengers 2 Futures <laughs> Avengers movies yeah <laughs> And like,
0: have you, hey, have you ever heard of this movie? Like, no, I've never heard of this Paris Burning. That's not all. a good sign because that yeah. was a
1: big, long movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would have stuck around. Because like, we, we all know what Dust Boot is. We know what Cleopatra is. I never heard of this movie until we did this podcast. So that's yeah. not a good sign when a movie's that long and quote unquote epic, and then nobody remembers it. Nobody on earth. Yeah. Was um, this nominated for Oscars? This was
0: nominated for two Academy Awards for uh, black and white cinematography and for oh. uh, production design slash art direction.
1: Which is weird because I feel the art direction sucks in this movie. It's yeah. weird that that was for an Oscar. Was it, was it Slim Pickens in 1966 for um, art direction? What were, the, uh, what were the other movies? What beat it? Which I'm sure will be like, well, yeah, the art direction for that was way better than mm-hmm. the, whatever this movie was. And I guess what I'm in my in my mind, this must have been the last year they did black and white cinematography as a category, right? There's no way they did that in '67.
0: I'm like I, I don't know officially, but uh, yes, I believe it would have to be because '66 you also had Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, which was nominated for Best Picture. That was black and white. Um,
1: and you had the much better, longer ensemble movie, "The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming," which yeah. I think was also 1966, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Uh, okay, so let's let's so let's look at the Oscars. Let's pull up the Oscars. Art direction. Okay, so is Paris Burning lost? As it should, it lost to Who's Afraid of a Virginia Woolf? Oh, weird. The Fortune Cookie. The art direction of that is really strange. It's just like a hospital bedroom.
0: Huh. Why is that?
1: I've never heard of The Gospel According to St. Matthew. I've never heard of Mr. Budwing. I never have. How weird. What a weird year. And then what was the other one? Black and White Cinematography? Yeah. Uh, Also lost to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Because it's Haskell Wexler. Haskell Wexler.
0: Okay. Nominated
1: with, oh, Seconds by James Wong Howe. That movie looks great. Georgie Girl and, again, The Fortune Cookie, which, again, is weird. There's nothing really amazing. I love The Fortune Cookie, but how it looks isn't really spectacular. That must be. If you go to 1967, there's. I bet there's no way there's a black and white cinematography. That's got to be like there's no way they're still holding on to that in 1967. Like I, I'm willing to put a dollar. I will give you a dollar if that is a category. I
0: think you're right. <laughs> I, so I, I don't take the bet. But um... yep. See,
1: best cinematography. It's just it. And of course, it went to Bonnie and Clyde because the times changed. Moved New Hollywood the year after this. And I'm very excited to get into future couple of stuff because once we get into new Hollywood stuff, then maybe I'll be less bored. Because man, these yeah. like these last few couple of movies, like if just I understand now why filmmakers were like yearning to do anything different <laughs> than these like just it's kind a of lull. this like this it's, it's a, a real low of like. These big, bloated, the, the, full of stars, full of great stars, but like, there's, you just you can tell you're in the death rows of the studio system. Yeah, the classic
0: uh, era, you know, the '40s and the '50s, and the early '60s. Yeah, but
1: like the mid '60s. Oh, no. it's not good. Like we, because Lawrence of Arabia was what? Was that '60? That was 62. '62. So it's crazy to think we're only like three or four years after that and already we've just like oh like we've hit the height of cinema for studio big and now we're here we're just like these clunky like like i would rather watch an episode of batman from 1966 which is more visually interesting than any of these bloated dumb movies i think that's why it's (laughs) uh it, it is very
0: astute that leonard moulton divided the cinema eras at 1965 did he Yeah. That makes sense. The uh, classic, his classic movie guide is the silent era through 1965 and the modern era is 1966 through through present.
1: And he recent, like not recently, but then he eventually divided his guides into two books that are classic and like modern. It used to be all in one. And then he was like, no, no, there are two different books, which makes sense. And it also makes it probably that first book is going to be a lot, a lot of good movies like until you get to this (laughs) mirror of the end of it. Yeah. And it makes sense, too, because you have, like, as we talked about a few episodes ago, you have, like, these Roger Corman, like, people like Coppola and Scorsese and Dennis Hopper, Jack Nicholson, Peter Fonda, like, this new hall, like, Warren Beatty, these people, like, slowly turning the knobs in, like, their weird little movies that they were allowed to make, mostly with Roger Corman, and they're allowed to eventually control Hollywood, get the keys to the kingdom, and we're not there yet, we're close, like, 65... We're getting into some of those like weird little movies, but like in, in nineteen sixty six for this movie, but like next year, oh man, I'm so excited. But we still have one more pre uh new Hollywood Coppola movie, which is the next one he directed, which is called You're a Big Boy Now. That's what our next episode will be. And I'm very excited to watch this. I've never movie. seen it, I'm also I know very nothing excited. Nothing about it. I'm willing to bet it'll be under three hours, which is good. So I'm I'm really pumped for that. Me too. Great. All right.
0: Well, we will see you then. Uh, Paris did not burn in case you in case you missed that.
1: And if you want a better movie, there is another movie called Paris is burning about voguing and drag culture in New York in the mid-80s. Rent that one instead. Just move the is in the middle. Much better. It's going to be a lot more
0: lively. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. Well, uh till next time, we'll see who's the big boy now. <laughs> that worked, right? Okay. Uh, Thanks for listening, and goodbye.
1: We did it!